Guys, it's uh, Mother's Day and a lot of this stuff you don't plan. <clears throat> but the story we're in this morning is about moms. It's about a couple of different moms. <clears throat> Timely on that. Uh, one older woman who's widowed, who loses a father, or excuse me, loses a husband and two sons. The other is a younger widow, a wife who's lost her husband. So two women without husbands or children, they don't have much hope, but they're committed to each other in the bonds of loyal love. If you know the story of Ruth in the book of Ruth, just one of the loveliest stories in all the Bible. Very short, four chapters, easy to read through in just a few minutes. And it sounds like overstatement, but it's not. That in the relationship of these two women and the faithfulness, Christ-like faithfulness, they express to each other in the bonds of loyal love, the, the world turned on the hinge of the relationship between those little dispossessed women that had no concept what God was up to. And it's all by God's providence, of course. It's all by God's power at the end of the day. But the Christ-like faithfulness those women exhibited towards others, and then faithfulness by Boaz, as you know the story comes in later, uh, the world was changed because of that. Christ came through the world through this line that these people had absolutely no, no concept of. They're just living life in the best way they know how. And part of that is Christ-likeness in the way of these bonds of affection that they simply say we're committed to each other. We're going to do something for that other person. It's costly to us, but that's what we're going to do. And that's what you'll see this morning in the story of Ruth. Their Christ-like faithfulness to each other provided the means by which another kind of faithful and redeeming love was introduced so that ultimately God's Christ, Lord Jesus, could be born into this world to save those who, like the widows, faced needs they couldn't hope to meet themselves. God used the least and the weakest to forge a link in the chain whereby He would bring Jesus to the world to those without God and without hope. And that would be people like you and me. Uh, listen to this from John fifteen thirteen. This was the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is talking to His disciples and He says this, Greater love is no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Greater love is no one than this, that they lay down their life for someone else. And of course, that's the very heart of the Gospel. You'll see that in spades in the story this morning. But guys, that kind of faithfulness, Christ-likeness in loyal, faithful love, it's in very short supply today. And I say that in the church, not just out there in the world. It's in short supply in the church. One of the things Jesus said in Matthew 24 that before the Son of Man would come in the second coming, the love of many would grow cold. If there's one place that that kind of Christ-like faithfulness in loyalness to others should be apparent and thriving, it's in the church. If we don't see it in the church, we are missing the mark big, big time. So I, I challenge you, this is a message that's certainly gone home for me and I hope does for you as well. By the way, on your study sheet, there's a couple references to some messages that were taught before on this same theme of loyal love. This is the 24th, Lord willing, of 66 messages in a series we're calling Heroes and Villains. Heroes are just those characters throughout the biblical record who display Christ-like faithfulness. They're faithful in the way Jesus modeled for us in His incarnation on the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Villains are those who are faithful ultimately to themselves. It's not to God. It's not about God and God's cause and, the, and loving God and loving others. It's really about themselves at the end of the day. So Christ-like faithfulness and loyal love is on display in our story this morning. 
not only in the relationships which is commonly thought of between Ruth and Naomi, but it's also between Boaz and Ruth, and it's also between Boaz and Eli Melech and Malon, and it's ultimately about faithfulness to God the Father Himself. Last time in this series, just to give us some perspective, last time in this series we looked at this lovely woman in the book of Judges, Deborah, uh, Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. 5 was the song of Deborah and Barak. And if you remember, the period of the Judges is topsy-turvy. It's upside down. Everything's wrong. The key phrase is everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's a lot like today, lawlessness. And in that time, it was the men were fearful. And out of that fear, they'd abdicated their responsibility to lead. And in that void, in that vacuum, God raises up this woman, Deborah. She's a prophet. Only God could make her a prophet. And she's a judge. And I love the phrase that she says in the song in Judges 5. She says that God raised me up like a mother in Israel. She doesn't say I put on my husband's pants. She doesn't say I became a man or more masculine. She says, no, I fulfilled the role God made me. I was like a mother in Israel. And out of that, God used her to defeat the Canaanites in the north and give Israel, not only victory, but peace for an extended period of time. We're in the same period in the story this morning. You can see these aren't uh, the timeline numbers are probably too small for you to see. But we're in the same period of the judges in what we're looking at this morning uh, in the story of Ruth and Boaz. So period of the judges around 1370 to 1050 B.C. Rough numbers. Our story's probably around 1150, and that's just a guess, by the way. Nobody has hard numbers for these. You're extrapolating based on the genealogies, basically. So around 1150 B.C. or so. And the story, just to put it geographically in perspective, so you can see southern, southern portion of Israel and the area on the, the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River Valley also. So they're going to start in Bethlehem there in the southern part of the Land of Promise in the tribal area of Judah. They're going to go across... Uh, the area of the Jordan River come down through Reuben's tribal area, part of it, into the land of Moab. Main point, and maybe a couple things to think about during and then after, uh, Christ-like faithfulness in our relationships requires costly self-denial, a willingness to serve the needs of others if we're going to participate significantly in what God's doing in the world today. And remember, the characters that we're looking at today, the, the women... They are absolutely, as far as the world scene is concerned, they're absolutely insignificant. No power, no prestige, no, no ability in and of themselves to affect any change in the world, and yet it's through those lives that God moves His mission, forges one more link in the chain of redemption through these people and through their costly love to each other. So we don't want to underestimate that. And ask ourselves this question, are we living out Christ-like faithfulness in the bonds of loyal love? Does that loyalty to another or to others, is that characteristic of my life? And again, guys, I would just tell you, it's not just in the world, it's in the church. We've lost this. I think by and large, we've lost Christ-like faithfulness in the bonds of loyalty to others. We're going to be in as hop, skipping, and jumping through the book of Ruth. If you've got a pew Bible, we're going to start at page 222. We're going to read for context here on the front end and go through from there. So I hope you have a study sheet. Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5 start this way. In the days when the judges ruled, same period as Deborah, there was a famine 
in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn. And, and by the way, just notice the language I want to point. I'll point out actually a bunch of things in this paragraph, but he's going to sojourn. That means I'm just taking a vacation. It's a short trip. I'm there and back again. Went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Moab, of course, as you saw on the map, east of the Dead Sea. And sorry for all the pauses here on the front end. So you've got a Jew who's leaving the land of promise to the east. And guys, when you see Jews leaving the land of promise to the east, it's almost always an indication of judgment or trouble. God said, I'm going to put you in the land of promise. When they're leaving, it's for a reason. So this is on the front end. This does not portend happy things coming up. He and his wife and his two sons. So there's irony here that we miss if we don't know what the names mean. There's irony because Bethlehem means the house of bread. And they're leaving the house of bread because there's no bread in the house. The house is empty. The place where you'd normally get bread and lots of it, it's empty. There's famine there. And when a Jew hears this story, there's a famine in the land of promise and the guy goes someplace else. Does that ring a bell for anyone else on an earlier story of a patriarch perhaps? What, what drove Abraham, Father Abraham out of the land of promise down into Egypt? And when he goes down to Egypt, who does he put in harm's way? His wife and his heritage, his posterity. So Jews here in this story, this sounds like Father Abraham. He got into trouble. There was trouble down there. I wonder what's coming up in this story. The, man of, uh, the name of the man was Eli Melech, which means my God is king. The name of his wife was Naomi, pleasant. So this is great so far, right? Great names there. The names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion, and suddenly that changes gears because Malon means sick, and Kilion means pining or wasting away. So it's not clear perhaps from birth these guys, they come out, they look sickly from birth, don't know, maybe these were names they earned as they grow, and it's like, man, you're sick. And you're not doing well yourself, so who knows, but anyway, we know they're going to die young also. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, this tells us, when you read in the Bible and it says Bethlehem Ephrata, it says that for a reason. There's more than one Bethlehem in the land of promise. There's another Bethlehem north of this. And Ephrata is the name that was Bethlehem before it became Bethlehem. So Ephrata means fruitful. The Canaanites called it a fruitful place. The Jews come in and they call the fruitful place Bethlehem, the house of bread, They've renamed it, but it's the same thing. So I'm from Bethlehem Ephrata. I'm from Bethlehem in the south, the place that was fruitful and full of bread. Uh, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we were just going to sojourn. And then we stayed there. <laughs> and guys, this has nothing to do with the lesson. But you've got to be so careful when you, when you tell yourself something. I'm just going to go do this. Or I'll just do this for this long. Or it won't be a big deal, I'll just do this little bit. You, you never know where a thing's going to take you, so you be careful with the first steps. So I'm going to sojourn. Oh, I think I'll stay. And while I stay, uh, Eli Melech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she's left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. When was the last time we heard about Jewish boys hooking up with Moabite women? Was this a good thing? This was not a good thing. Numbers 25. Baal Peor and, and idolatry and immorality and judgment. So we're hearing this story through Jewish ears and we're thinking, man, this is not good. 
The name of the one, one wife was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. That's a long vacation, isn't it? That's a long sojourn. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left, Naomi, without her two sons and her husband. So we're not going to read a lot of the text. She'll say later, I went out full, came back empty. My name did mean pleasant, now call me Mara. Call me bitter, my life's become bitter. So while she's there, she's lost her son, she's lost her husband, but she hears the famine's over. I've got no reason to stay in a foreign land. I'm going to go back to my hometown. So she tells her former daughters-in-law, she says, hey gals, I've got nothing to give you, right? So go back to your own families of origin. And of course, Orpah does. Ruth does not. And probably the most famous uh, words, and some of the better known words in the Bible actually, uh, certainly in the book of Ruth, uh, is Ruth's response to Naomi when she says, hey, go back, just like your sister-in-law did. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord... Now when you see caps, all caps in your Bible, that means the proper name of God. Yahweh, I am that I am. Yahweh, do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. So this is, a, this is not only a, a lovely, great young lady, but she's expressing faith in God the God of Israel, Yahweh, the eternal God, the real God. And you've got this first declaration of Christ-like loyal love. And it's not in a marriage setting. It's a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. Often a relationship that might be fraught with friction, it's this one where you see in this story, it's the beginning of this Christ-like loyal love. Now, Ruth's words are lovely and they're memorable and they express a great devotion on her part and, and true Christ-like loyal love. But consider what fulfilling those words meant to her. It's easy to say things, isn't it? It's easy to tell somebody I love you. Showing that, demonstrating that's an entirely different thing. What did it mean to Ruth to walk out the pledge of loyalty to Naomi? So first we know she's forsaking her own family of origin. <clears throat> we don't know anything about them except they're Moabites, but she's forsaking her family of origin. Uh, Kathy and I, many of you know, uh, I used to be part of this church, Jen. Uh, Jen came into this country 20 years ago or so, more, when she was 16, finished high school here. Jen has done everything legal all along the way to stay in the United States. And Kathy and I, was delightful we went to a citizenship ceremony for Jen Jen Chen became an American officially and guys I'll tell you I was struck by someone it was it seriously brought tears to my eyes to see this hall filled there were over 400 uh, national uh, foreign nationals who were becoming American citizens the place was full and uh, one of the things that struck me they went through, there's a judge, it is officially, it's a court, the court's in session, the judge is there, they open the court. And one of the things they did was, when they, they repeat after the person up front giving the declaration of citizenship, they renounce all loyalty to the place they've come from. They've cut off verbally, they say we have no faithfulness, no loyalty to the country of our origin. 
We, we have said goodbye to our past. We are Americans. We're not Lebanese. We're not Nigerians. We're not Bolivians. We're, we're Americans, as in the United States of America. It's like, this is serious stuff. You hear these people saying our loyalty is entirely changed. It's been removed from one place. It's been intentionally set on another. That's what's going on for Ruth. She's saying, my family of origin, I'm leaving them behind. She's leaving all her old friends, everyone and everything that would have been familiar to her. And guys, one of the things that's hard for us in perspective we are in the communication, transportation age. You want to go see, we fly in moments to see our kids on the other side of this country. That's not happening back here. Uh, Kathy's grandmother left Poland as an immigrant. She traveled to the United States. When she said goodbye to her family, she never saw them again. Never saw them again. That was it. That's what we're talking about here. It's a forsaking of everything before to embrace everything ahead. That's exactly what Ruth is doing. She's probably also, it's hard to say what she's thinking at this point, she's going to be a Moabite in a Jewish country. I wonder what her, her uh, chances of a good marriage might be there. I'm a foreigner. I, I, I don't speak the language. I don't have the same customs. They know I'm a Moabite. I stick out like a sore thumb. And if I don't get married, I've got no children. She's pledging to Naomi, whatever it takes, I'm with you for the duration. I'm here for you. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I'm committed. I've cut all my bonds from the past and you've got everything I've got. I'm here for you. So when we hear those words, we need to think, what does it cost to fulfill that vow of loyal love? It costs her everything. Ruth displays Christ-like faithfulness to Naomi at all her costs. She embraces a life of probably personal deprivation to serve Naomi and actually to be faithful to Yahweh. She believes in the God of Israel at this point. And she says, I'm coming to the God of the Jews. I'm coming to Yahweh. Before we proceed, just ask yourself, and there's some questions on your study sheet along this line. Have I ever felt, have I ever been in that relationship where I realized that Christ in me means a loyal commitment to someone else that's costly? And I don't mean marriage here. It's not that marriage can't be this same situation. But in marriage, when we engage in marriage, the, the groom is saying, I'm getting a great life with this gal. And the gal saying, I'm getting a great life with this guy. And that's not what I'm saying. Have we had relationships? Do we have relationships now where we simply understand Christ in me requires loyal love to this person and it's not what I would choose necessarily. It's costly. But their cause is Christ's cause and because of that, it's my cause. Do we have any of those relationships? Have we in the past? Do we now? Do, are our eyes even open to the possibility of that? Now, I will say this as a caveat or a qualification. In fact, I had a conversation with someone about this just a couple of weeks ago. It is really difficult in the time and place we live to know what God requires of me as an individual versus someone else. Guys, we have, we're aware of, of a thousand times more situations and needs than we can have anything to do with. You get numb. You read the news and there's a bombing here and there are murders here and there's deaths there and there's starvation here and we become numb to it. We, we are overburdened with information of people and situations and needs 
that we can't do a thing about and aren't called to. But are our ears tuned, are our eyes open that there will be situations in your life and mine where God says, this is my cause and this is for you. This is, a, this is a need that you're going to help sustain. This is a person you're going to walk beside. Our eyes need to be open to that if we're going to be like Christ. This is a Depression-era photo. Though Ruth's Christ-like faithfulness is admirable, guys, what did Ruth bonding herself to Naomi do to save their lives? It didn't do anything. Their situation remains the same. These are two widows without anything that they can do for each other. In, this, in the big world of the time, they're powerless. So they've got each other. They're committed. But they don't have the resources to affect any change for, for themselves, much less the other person as well. They're needy. They have needs they cannot meet. You know, widows, you read the Scriptures, it's Old and New Testament. Widows, orphans, and strangers are the trio that are routinely mentioned about how the Jews or any people treated the most vulnerable among them. Widows are in that group for a reason. You know, back in the ancient Middle East when this story occurred, and some places today, if you're a woman without a husband or a father or a family unit, you are hanging out. You have no means to take care of yourself, to protect yourself from other people, to provide for yourself. They are the weakest and they are the most vulnerable. They're bound to each other, but that binding together does nothing to solve their problems. Their needs individually and collectively remain unmet. Two women needed someone to step in and help deliver them. And of course, if you know the story, you know where all of this is leading. In the Hebrew language, they need what's called a goel. A goel, a, a kinsman, a relative who has the ability to redeem. A kinsman redeemer. Some of the translations will say a kinsman redeemer. A relative who has the wealth, the power, the authority, the ability to come in and offer redemption. That's exactly what they need. And guys, one of the biggest things I think for us, especially thinking of the Sunday school lesson this morning, sometimes the most profound and helpful moments in your life or mine are the ones where we have a Ruth and Naomi moment where we realize I'm facing a need and I have absolutely no ability to do anything about it. It could be financial or emotional. It could be relational. There are needs in my life I see and I have nothing that I bring to bear that I can fix this thing or meet the need. That's a good day. Because when that happens, we start looking elsewhere for help. And this whole book, the whole story at the end of the day, is about what God's done for us in Christ in meeting us where we were at, powerless, absolutely unable to do anything for ourselves. And God sends, of course, in Christ a kinsman redeemer, just as He sends Boaz into the life of these two ladies. So those needy moments that we experience are providential because they remind us at the end of the day we need someone. We need someone to come in and redeem us. And as the story progresses, they go back to Bethlehem, and it's the harvest time, which is a good thing. And so Ruth, the younger of the two women, she goes out to glean in the fields. 
Now, gleaning was provided by the law. You know, again, we wouldn't see it this way. And combines and harvesters are much more efficient than hands were in the past. They'd go out with knives or sickles. They'd cut the standing grain. They'd stand it up. It'd dry out. They'd thresh it afterwards. But the gleaners were the poor people. They didn't own fields. They didn't have wealth. They couldn't go to the corner grocery store. They would follow the harvesters, the reapers, and they'd pick up individual grains of wheat or corn or small heads of grain. They'd pick up what the reapers missed, and that's what they would take home. And so that's what Ruth is doing. And it's funny, in the story, it just says she happened to fall into the field of Boaz. This isn't happenstance. This isn't chance. As far as she was concerned, she's just going down the road looking for a likely field. But in the providence of God, she ends up in the field of Boaz. She doesn't know who Boaz is, but that's the guy she needs to meet. Boaz's name means fleet. Not sure that's significant in the story. I think it might be significant, though, that one of the other places the name Boaz comes up in the Bible, Boaz is one of the two columns that holds up the the roof of the house of God that Solomon, Boaz's descendant, built that Boaz, in this sense, upholds the house of God. He's in the line of promise. It's from Boaz that not only David will come, as you know, but Solomon, the one who would build God's house. So uh, this is verses 8 through 12 in Ruth 2. Boaz said to Ruth, he meets her in the field. He says, listen, my daughter, don't go glean in another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. Stick with these gals. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? They're not going to hurt you. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. In other words, he says, I'm taking care of you. Don't go anyplace else. You're safe in my fields. I've told my young guys they're not going to mess with you. You're going to be with my young gals. You're safe. Stick right here. I'm going to take care of you. She falls on her face, bows to the ground, and says to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And this is where the bonds of loyal love have already paved the way for Ruth in ways she had no no idea of. Verse 11, Boaz answered her, and he says, Well, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And here he uses the proper name of God. Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Boaz is blessing Ruth in God or Yahweh's name. And he has no idea that he will be one of the key means to the blessing. And that in God fulfilling his blessing to her, he himself will also be blessed. But he's just saying, I'm here for you. You're a needy young gal. I'm going to take care of you. And I know what you've done. And I'm praying God's blessings on you. Well, in chapter 3, Naomi hears about Boaz's kindness. And she comes up with a plan. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5-10, through the law provided, and this comes up in the Gospels. You probably remember when the Sadducees try to, to get Jesus. Uh, the law stated that if... Uh, a gal was married to a guy, they haven't had any children, so the guy has no heirs, and he dies. His brother is to marry that widow, and the first son born to that new union would in fact belong to the dead brother. And it was a way to keep the land in the family line, and it was a way for that man's 
heritage to remain in Israel. Otherwise, he dies, he has no heirs, no one to carry on his name. When this story takes place, it looked like that on the practical level of things, this wasn't restricted to brothers because uncles or cousins would also fulfill that same role of being the kinsman redeemer. It's called a leveret marriage in which the brother or the near relative would marry the widow. The first son doesn't belong to the father, the biological father, but to the dead brother or dead relative to raise up his name and maintain the, the family plot in Israel. And so that's what Naomi comes up with. So she tells Ruth, hey, listen, after the harvest celebration, when Boaz is eaten and drunk, you go up in the evening and you lie down at his feet. He's going to lie down to sleep there on the harvest area, the floor. You go down and you take his, his garment and you cover yourself with it. And of course she does. And of course he wakes up and he's like, what's going on? Who are you? <laughs> she says, I'm Ruth. And she says, and, and think of, he says, you've come to seek refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. She says, depending on your translation, she says, cover me with your wings. The concept, whether it's wings or not, is cover me. Would you be my kinsman redeemer? Would you be the one who steps in to redeem me? And so he says, hey, I would be glad to. With one caveat. Uh, I'm not the first in line. Someone else is actually a near relative than me. So you get to Ruth chapter 4, and Boaz says, but don't worry, I'll take care of it. So he goes to the gate of the city, and the other relative is there. Now he has first dibs as far as the kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz says, hey, Eli Melech, he's gone. His son Malon's gone. We need a redeemer. The guy says, no problem, I'll do it. And Boaz is shrewd in this, by the way. He says, oh, and you, have, you know, by the way, you need, you'll take Ruth the Moabitess. And the guy's like, hold on. He says, I can't take her, and I won't. Because if I do, I'm putting my own inheritance, and the text is not clear on this. We don't know exactly what this looked like. I'm putting my own inheritance at risk if I do this. Not sure exactly why, but he's like, I can't do that, and I won't, which is what Boaz wanted him to say. So now Boaz is free to, and this is what he'll do as the kinsman redeemer. He will buy Eli Melech's land from Naomi. He will marry Ruth. He'll raise up a descendant for Eli Melech and for his son Malon, Ruth's first husband. He'll provide a home and security for Ruth and Naomi. And God willing, if he has more than one son, he'll raise up his own posterity, his own heir in Israel as well. So Boaz marries Ruth. She conceives. She has a little boy named Obed and Obed grows up and he has a little boy named Jesse and Jesse grows up and he has eight sons and the eighth son is David who is king and to who to whom God gives the promise that it's through your line not just Judah's tribe but David it's from your line specifically that the Messiah will come first Samuel 7 is the Davidic promise from God that Messiah comes through David's line and that means that it comes through Boaz now, Ruth's story is a great story, all on its own. But if this story gets cut in half and we don't have Boaz, we don't have the story. So Boaz is the hero of the story. There's no story without Boaz. There's no story without a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. So Ruth is the damsel in distress. He's the shining prince. So on one hand, Boaz is like Clark Kent. He's meek, he's mild, he's thoughtful, he's courteous. 
But on the other, he has the power and the authority of Superman in the sense of redeeming. And he needs both of those. He needs the loyal love, but he needs the power and the wealth as well. He's a close relative, so he has the standing to become the kinsman redeemer. He needs to be a relative. He has wealth adequate to buy Eli Melech's land because he is buying the land until the year of Jubilee. He's got to pay Naomi for the land. He's single so Ruth can become his wife. He doesn't jeopardize anybody else's heritage or division of the land. He's compassionate and faithful not only to Ruth and Naomi, but guys, he's also faithful to Eli, Melech, and Malon and ultimately to the Lord. And I think this gets lost. The faithfulness wasn't just to the women. He says, I'm going to raise up a name, a son, for my relatives, and the son won't be mine legally biologically it'll be my son but legally this will not be my boy be someone else's boy to get their land to raise up their name in the land of promise ruth without boaz is loyal love and loss because they've got nothing to bring they can't redeem each other ruth redeemed by boaz is loyal love joined to loyal love resulting in redemption Now, it's costly for Boaz to redeem Naomi and Ruth, just as it was costly for Ruth to tell Naomi, I'm here for you. Come what may, wherever we live, I'm with you, I'm here for you. So financially, he's got to pay for the land. This may not have been in his ledgers. He may not have planned on this, but he's got to pay for a chunk of land. And the thing with the firstborn son, guys, this is a a big deal. It's It's a huge deal. So that son is not legally his. It's Eli Melech's and it's Malon's. He's going to raise it. He's going to love it. But it's not legally his son. And it doesn't inherit his estate. It inherits somebody else's estate. You know, if I'm thinking about myself, that's a big deal. It's a big deal in Israel. What if he doesn't have more than one son? He's hanging out just the way Malon and Eli Melech were. He doesn't have someone to carry on his name to keep his portion of the tribal lands. So it was costly for Boaz to do this. And though it's costly, and I love this, there was joy in it for him. He acquires this lovely woman. He gets a family. I mean, his life, sorry if you're a lifelong bachelor, but his life (laughs) grows exponentially, right? In having a family and a boy. I mean, it would have changed everything for him. It was great. He got joy, but the joy came through the costly commitment. And this is something I think we just don't lay hold of today. There are joys in life you can't experience until you've laid your life down for someone else. There is joy to be had in Christ-like faithfulness to someone else that brings joy you can't get any other way. And think of this from Hebrews. For the joy set before Jesus, He endured the cross. There was a future joy for Christ that came through the loss and the suffering and the costly redemption for you and me. There was a joy attached to that that was attached to the suffering, to the costly commitment. He couldn't have that joy without that sacrifice. And that's what a lot of us don't get anymore. There's joy in life that only comes because you've laid your life down and you've lost it. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25. He said, guys, if you live for yourself, you have the good life, you have the boats, you have the cars, you have the wealth, whatever. And you live for yourself, you'll lose your life. You won't get life, you'll lose life. But he said, if you'll lose your life for my sake and the Gospels, you'll get it. 
It's reverse, and that's the way the kingdom of God on this topsy-turvy world works. You lose your life, and you get it. Actually, let me read you. I just found this last night, but I thought it was so good. I had to read it to you. Listen to this. This is from a book I just checked out. This is, just the, this is all I've read of the whole book. Sorry. So I, I'm not even recommending the book, but the introduction is great. He says, uh, every once in a while, I meet a person who radiates joy. These are people who seem to glow with an inner light. They are kind, tranquil, delighted by small pleasures, and grateful for the large ones. These people are not perfect. They get exhausted and stressed. They make errors in judgment. But they live for others and not for themselves. They've made unshakable commitments to family, a cause, a community, or a faith. They know why they were put on this earth and derive a deep satisfaction from doing what they have been called to do. Life isn't easy for these people. They've taken on the burdens of others. This sounds a lot like our story, doesn't it? But they have a serenity about them, a settled resolve. They are interested in you, make you feel cherished and known, and take delight in your good. When you meet these people, you realize that joy is not just a feeling, it can be an outlook. There are temporary highs we all get after we win some victory. And then there is also this other kind of permanent joy that animates people who are not obsessed with themselves, but have given themselves away. Now that's profound, and that's the story of Ruth. That's David Brooks' uh, book, new book just out called The Second Mountain. That's exactly what you have in the story of Ruth. You have Christ-like faithfulness in the bonds of loyal love that they express towards each other. Now, you have to go uh, where the story takes us. Ultimately, the, the, the story of Ruth is one of the clearest presentations of the Gospel in the Old Testament. Do you guys remember the, the story of Oliver? Do you remember what he's... He recognizes a need, doesn't he? And he goes with an empty bowl and he says, more please. <laughs> That's us, by the way. Uh, this is one of the clearest presentations of the Gospel. Ruth and Naomi, in all their weakness and all their need, they are stand-ins for you and me. For all of us. We all have the same problem. We're sinners lost among sinners. And Boaz, like so many characters in the Bible and stories and narratives and sacrifices, Boaz represents Christ. On our side, our need, as sons and daughters of Adam, we have needs, and these are primarily spiritual. Guys, it doesn't matter if you live to be 100 years or 1,000 or 10,000, you die. Everything on this earth dies unless Jesus calls us first, and I'm good with that. I'm ready for that. Jesus calls, trumpet blasts, up we go. We're good. If that doesn't happen, though, we all die. Our chief issue is spiritual. It's not physical. It's not houses and cars. It's not food. It's spiritual. We have no ability whatsoever to do anything about our spiritual need. All of us have sins that we cannot atone for. We are sinners lost among sinners. Even when we have the impulse to do right, we often lack the will and the power to do it. Lincoln talked about the better angels of our nature, but we've got demons too in that fallen status that we're all born into. Our pride leads us to believe we're adequate when we're not until challenges come up that we can't face. We face the evils of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are just like those gals. We need someone to come in and redeem us. It wasn't just those two, it's you and me as well. Jesus, like Boaz, wants to redeem us. Boaz says, there's someone who has a claim on you before me. And I can't come save you until that claim 
has been satisfied. There's various takes on this, what the extrapolation of that would be to Jesus and to you and me. This is my take. When God met Israel at Sinai, He gave them the law, the covenant. And, and this gets uh, translated and repeated, the essence of the law in numerous ways, numerous passages in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Galatians 3 would be the key. In which the law says, do you want to live forever? Do you want to be okay with God, with a holy and righteous God? The law says, fine. All you've got to do is do this and live. All you have to do is do this and live. Do this and live. <laughs> do you want to live forever? Do this and live. That's what the law says. Okay, great. But then you realize something. Guess what? You can't do this and live. No one can do this and live. So you get to Galatians 3 and the Jews, are, they're confused. They're like, Paul, what do you mean? Uh, we don't keep the law. And why did God give us the law? And he says, well, God gave you the law to show you that the law can't save you. The law can't save anyone. All the law can do is condemn you. Just like that near kinsman, he says, I can't save you and I won't. And the law says to us, I can't save you and I won't. Absolutely no way. There's a great Psalm, Psalm 49, verses 7-9. through if I'm lost and you're lost, who can save us? Can we, any of us save the other? <laughs> Psalm 49 says, uh, No man can by any means redeem his brother. The cost is too high. Cease trying forever. We're all in the same boat. We're Ruth and Naomi. We can't help ourselves and we can't help anyone else. I love this that you get to Acts 4 and you remember the Acts 3, Peter has healed a lame man in the temple and the temple's all agog and they take him to the Jewish leaders and the Jewish leaders accuse Peter and do you remember what Peter says in Acts 4, verse 12? It's a great memory verse. He says, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Boaz says, somebody's got a claim, got to take care of that, then I can redeem you. The law says, I can't save you. I can't save you and I won't. And Jesus comes up and He says, I'm the kinsman redeemer. You want salvation? I'm it. And there's only one way. And Jesus makes no bones about this. And guys, in the multicultural, touchy-feely world we're in today, to say that there's one way to heaven and one way only sounds awfully narrow. But there's one way and there's one way only. He is our only hope. Uh, listen to this, just the comparisons winding down. Jesus came in the incarnation so He would be our relative. He's got to be like us to redeem. He's got to be related to us. He came humbly, just like Boaz, though He was Lord of all. He had the wealth to redeem us. Joseph was assumed to be Jesus' father when in fact He was the son of another. Boaz has a son, and everybody says that's Boaz's son. Yeah, but legally he's not Boaz's son. Everybody thinks Jesus is Joseph's son, but He's not. He's the son of His Father. Jesus was perfect in righteousness and therefore could afford to become our sin bearer. Another sinner can't pay for his sins, much less someone else's. Jesus was filled with compassion and love for those in need just like us, just like Boaz was. And for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross and its shame to purchase a bride, His church. That's you and me. I love that. It's, it's point by point. When you get through this story and these lives, there's only a few key questions. The first is simply this. Is Jesus your Redeemer? At the end of the day, it's, it's all that matters. It's eternity. It's heaven and hell. It's all that matters. Is Jesus your Redeemer? 
He's available as your Redeemer. The only question is, have we received Him in the arms of faith? Is Jesus your Redeemer? If you know Christ is your Redeemer, do you tell others that a Redeemer is available? That there's someone who's a kinsman Redeemer that's available for them just like He was for you? Because we should. We're witnesses. And last, third and last, are we demonstrating that same kind of loyal love? We're not Jesus and we're not saving people. But Christ's life is in us and Christ, like Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, Christ has and is loyal love to others. If Christ's life is in me and you and it's growing, faithful, loyal love, faithfulness should look like that in your life and mine. Transformation into Christ's image should mean or should include that. Well, stand with me if you would as we wind down. We're going to read a passage from Isaiah 54. The worship team can come up. Uh, This passage is from God to Israel. And yet as we read this together, you'll see that it absolutely applies in spades to you and I as believers today in the church and God the Son becoming our kinsman redeemer. Read this with me if you will. Isaiah 54 verses 4 and 5. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called.